0: God, we come before you. We have just declared that you all things are from you and to you and for your glory. Scripture tells us, from you and through you and to you are all things, and all things exist to bring you glory. God, we're thankful that we have audience right now with the God of all creation, the God who is upholding all things by the word of his power. You hear us, you delight in our prayers, and you delight to answer. God, we ask right now that you would stop the evil and wicked things happening on the other side of the world. God, I ask right now, first and foremost, that anyone who does not know you, that the Holy Spirit would be at work to bring them to saving faith in Jesus Christ whether that's soldiers on one side or the other. God, I ask that you would save souls, that as there is so much death happening, uh, God, Scripture, your word tells us that you have written eternity on the hearts of men. So I ask that you would awaken that awareness of eternity, that you would make people mindful of their mortality, and that you would draw people to yourself, Jesus, and that you would save souls. I pray for those who have experienced great loss, that you would be the ever-present help in the time of need, that you would be the Holy Spirit, their comforter. I ask that you would give them peace, that you would give them strength. God, I ask that you would heal the broken heart. God, I ask that you would thwart and stop the, the devices, the schemes, the plans, the mechanisms of evil men. I ask that you would shut things down. We have just been in Exodus where we saw you powerfully do things in Egypt thousands of years ago to give glory to your name and for the good of your people. I ask you to do it again. I ask you to give people the courage to stand against wickedness and evil the same way that you moved on the hearts of the Hebrew midwives not to kill those babies as they were ordered to by Pharaoh. I ask that you would, by your Holy Spirit, move on the hearts of people not to obey orders of evilness and wicked in the name of Jesus. God, we ask you for peace. We ask that you would work to save many lives and that you would make an example out of the evil and wickedness that has been happening. For the good of many and for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please continue to do that. As often as you think about it, as often as you hear on the news, as often as you check social media or whatever might be going on, this ought to be the hour where the church stands up and prays and wages war spiritually on behalf of people we may never meet in this life and probably will never meet in this life. God gave us the ability to make a difference. Even if we cannot be there and even if we cannot do things physically, God gave us the ability. So let's thank you for praying with me and let's continue to pray. Um, amen. Um, if you are in this room, normally that's where we would have a video that, that says if you're in the ages of 4th through 6th grade, you can be dismissed. So if you're in here and that video didn't play, if you want to go over to the Emerge, which is out this door, 4th through 6th grade, you can go do that right now. Um, as we're going to continue to get into the Word here today. Um, I I love that God has had us in the Word in Exodus, watching His power over nations of the earth, uh, that we are able to have confidence in the God uh, who can do anything, and He is above every power, and there is no one who can stay His hand, is what Scripture teaches us. And it has been abundantly revealed in Exodus what we have been reading, um, and if you're new here, if you're a visitor, we're in the middle of something this year that we're calling the Year of the Bible, year 2022. We are going through a Bible reading plan to read scripture. And right now we're in Exodus. And so if you want to jump in that reading plan with us after service is over, you can go out to uh, the info desk out by the cafe and you can get a reading plan so that you can jump in this reading plan with us Um if you do that, we're starting this next week, will be week number nine out of this reading plan. So you can go get that, jump in with us. And if you're here and you have been doing the reading plan, but maybe you fell off, slacked a little bit, got behind or whatever, just go ahead and forgive yourself and jump back in. Starting tomorrow, day one of week nine, just jump in, don't beat yourself up. Let's get back into the word and believe that God is gonna change people's lives through the reading of his word, amen? Amen. Amen. I've been loving hearing some wonderful reports of what God has been doing through this um, in the lives of our church family. To summarize where we were last week, one of the most famous stories in all of Scripture where uh, Moses goes before Pharaoh and says, Let my people go, uh, uh, obeying the Lord as an ambassador for God, going to Pharaoh, the most powerful man in all of the known land, and the most powerful empire in all of the known land, and Moses goes up to him defiantly And uh, for God says, let my people go. And we saw God acting in spectacular, powerful ways to declare his power over all, his power over Pharaoh, over Egypt. How many times throughout that story it said, that you will know that I am the Lord and the earth. And that is a refrain we see throughout Scripture, that God is passionate for the renown of his name. And so we saw, finally, after the 10th plague, Pharaoh, broken, says, get out. And the people of God, Exodus, Egypt. They leave Egypt, and they're going on their way to the promised land with a detour in the wilderness. Remember, God told Moses, you're going to worship on this mountain. So they're going in that direction. They approach the Red Sea, and then Pharaoh's heart is hardened again. And he comes after the Israelites with 600 chariots, to ready, and kill, ready to kill them. And God says, I'm not done yet. Watch this. And the Israelites are at the coast of the Red Sea. God stops the Egyptians, tells Moses, extend your staff, and the waters part, and they walk through as on dry ground. This is a miracle, another miraculous display of God's power. And they go through the Red Sea as on dry ground, and then God removes the pillar of cloud and fire allowing pharaoh's army to chase the israelites in they enter in they get bogged down not the way the egyptian or the israelites went through they get bogged down they get stuck down there and then moses removes and causes those waters to collapse and completely obliterate pharaoh's army and then after that pharaoh or moses is standing on the other side absolutely elated at the salvation power of god to destroy their enemies and close that door behind them, Moses responds in song. And I remember growing up, I'm a pastor's kid, been in church my whole life, and there were these songs that we sang. I'm going to start singing a song. If you know it, feel free to jump in, although I think it might be few. I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and the rider thrown into the sea. I will sing unto the Lord, for he is triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider are thrown into the sea. The Lord liveth, and blessed be the rock. Blessed be the rock of my salvation. I, okay, okay, stop. I remember singing that song as a kid, going, why are we singing about horses being thrown into the sea? But when you read the Bible in context and you read the story, you go, oh, this is Moses' song of praise and worship, elation unto God, because God saved them from the horse and the rider, throwing them into the sea. And he gives praise to the power of God. That was a fun little nostalgia kick for me that you're going to have to forgive me for. (laughs) So they get out. Their enemy is conquered, they're into the wilderness, they're going several days, and they go a few days without water. They get thirsty, and they begin grumbling against Moses, ultimately against God. Moses says, God, we need water, and God says, okay, this bitter spring right here, take that log, throw it in, and it'll turn sweet, and he does, and the bitter water turns sweet, and the, able, and the people are nourished from the fresh water, and then they continue on into the wilderness, and they start going, God, we're hungry, Moses, we ain't got no food what's going on? We would have rather stayed in Egypt under that than come out to the wilderness to die. What's going on? And God speaks to Moses telling him, okay, here's the deal. I'm going to test my people by giving them bread, manna, every morning. It's going to appear on the ground. They called it manna, literally translating, what is it? We don't know what this is, this bread that's appearing on the ground. God told him, I'm going to test my people. I'm going to give them manna every single day. They are to collect only enough for themselves for that day and not keep any extra overnight. God says, I'm doing this to test them to see if they will obey my commands. And he also caused massive flocks of quail to come into the land so that they could have meat in the evenings and they would have their bread in the morning. And guess what? They failed the test. They kept more bread than they needed throughout the night. It spoiled. They got worms in there. It was bad. It was nasty. They failed that test right there. Then they continue on in the wilderness and again get to a point where they're famished. They they are thirsty. They feel like they need more water. And so God... Tells Moses, hey, take a rock or take a staff, strike this rock, water's going to come out of it, and you can take care of the people that way. It happens. Time after time after time, after all of the things that happened in Egypt, after the parting of the Red Sea, more and more times God shows his people who he is, that he's Lord over the earth, that he can make things happen, that no one and nothing else can make happen, that he is the Lord. Then beyond that, Israel's out in the wilderness. There's another people group called the Amalekites who hear about them getting out of Egypt, go, hey, let's go attack them. So they go down there and attack the Israelites Moses tells Joshua, go out to meet them in war and we're going to see the Lord prevail today. Moses stands up behind the battlefield with his staff raised in the air and as long as he's holding up his staff, Israel prevails over the Amalekites. But he gets fatigued and starts letting his arms droop. And the Amalekites start prevailing over the Israelites. So Aaron and Hur come up beside Moses and pick his arms back up. And the Israelites prevail and have victory over the people, uh, the Amalekites, showing again, this isn't because of your power, your strength, your sword. This is the hand of God moving on your behalf. I am the Lord that you will know. Then we see Moses catch up with his father-in-law since he's in that neck of the woods. And his father-in-law comes over and he tells his father-in-law, Jethro, everything that God has done for them. Jethro responds with praise to God, elated at what God has done for Moses and the people of Moses' family, these Israelites And then Jethro's there for a little while watching how every single day Moses is dealing with every single person's nitpicky issues. And Jethro's like, dude, this is not smart. You're going to kill yourself being in all this. You need to set up elders over thousands of people and hundreds of people and fifties of people and 10. And we see God use the wisdom of Jethro to set up a system for Moses that he doesn't kill himself and he delegates and uses leadership. God has been doing wonderful things this whole time. And it leads us to Exodus chapter 19, where we're going to pick up reading today in verse 1. Exodus chapter 19, verse 1 says this, On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called up to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, And tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak to you And may believe you forever. God manifests on this mountain in this thick cloud and in fire and in thunder. And these audible sounds of blasting trumpets that kept getting louder and louder. And God reveals himself in in a measure, so to speak, to Moses through that cloud and began speaking to him. God basically right here setting the context for everything that we're about to read about these commandments, because we know what's coming, the Ten Commandments and all the other commandments. But before God gets into that stuff, he says, hey, guys, remember, I am the Lord, I brought you out of Egypt don't forget that. He's saying, I brought you out. I bore you up on eagles' wings. I drew you to myself. And then he invites them into covenant with himself in this highly desirable invitation. He's not just saying, hey, let's make covenant. I'm going to make covenant with you. He says, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples of the earth. because He says, for all the earth is mine. This has been put on display And what happened in Egypt, God showed the earth is mine. And you are the people I have chosen out of all the peoples of the earth to be my people. But if you're going to be my people, we will have a covenant. And you are going to become a nation of of priests. He said you will become a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What is a priest? We see this unfolding as well as we continue to read Exodus and Leviticus, but a priest is someone who ministers to God or mediates between God and the people. That there was this tabernacle that was designed, meticulously commanded by God. Not only the tabernacle, but also what they were supposed to wear was meticulously designed by God. These, uh, the, the practices of worship and of sacrifices that God said, you're going to do everything this way. Setting out the standards that if you're going to be my people, if you're going to be my people, you're going to be a kingdom of priests. Meaning the way that the priest represents you to me, you're going to represent me to the people. You're going to look to the nations different than all the nations, which is why he said you will be a holy nation. Remember, we've talked about holiness a lot. The word holy meaning a set apart, different, other, unlike anyone and anything else. God's saying, you're going to be my prized possession. You're going to be a kingdom of priests. And if you're going to be my prized possession, my kingdom of priests, you will be a holy people, meaning unlike everyone else. And then he would go on into the commandment saying, and here is how you will be like everyone else. He sets the context, and there's something that I want us to see here that's abundantly clear in all Scripture. Both Old Testament and New Testament, we see it very clear that God wants His people to be different. God wants His people to be different than the rest of the world. The people of God, both in the Old Testament and in the New, are expected by God to think different, to believe different, to behave different, to speak different, to treat others different, to do family different as we just practiced child dedication, to do finances different, to worship different, to serve different, to do everything different, that all the nations of the earth would look at these people and go, they're different than us. They're other You might think, oh, well, Pastor Stephen, that's just an Old Testament thing. That's the Old Covenant stuff, all the holiness. No, let's see a lot of it in the New Testament. Let's flip really quick to John chapter 17. Jesus is talking to his, well, actually, he's talking to God. He's praying to his father for his disciples, the 11 disciples that are left after Judas betrayed him. This is the night before he would be betrayed and arrested and then go to trial and then go die on the cross for the sins of mankind. And he's praying to the father for his disciples, what is known as this high priestly prayer. And he's praying all these things for his disciples, knowing that his disciples, that the world didn't receive himself because they are not uh, from God. And he said, they're not going to receive my disciples either. Uh, Because they're not of the world, they're of you. And so let's see what he says here in John 17. Jesus talking, praying to the Father about his disciples, uh, verses 13 through 20. He says, but now I am coming to you, Father. And these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Right there, he's saying, sanctify them. That is a word that is very much connected to holiness. When something is sanctified, that means it is set apart, set aside. And so he's saying, sanctify them in your truth, or in the truth, your word is truth. And he goes on in verse 18, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world, and for their sake... I consecrate myself, another word that is relative to holiness and things being set apart. I consecrate or set apart myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. And then here comes the good news for us today because so far he's praying about his 11 disciples, but he doesn't stop there. Verse 20, he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their, who will believe. He's talking about us. I pray this also for those who will believe in me through their word meaning the preaching of the apostles what we have now today for us as scripture that they may all be one just as you father and or just as you father are in me and I in you that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me so that the world may believe that you have sent me. This is Jesus saying, praying to the father of his followers, Lord, help them, sanctify them, set them apart by your truth, by your word, that your word, the truth, is what sets us apart and makes us different. Why the year of the Bible? Because the scripture, the word of God, sanctifies us, sets us apart, and makes us different. It works in our heart. It it teaches us the truth. It teaches us who God is. It teaches us who we are. It it affects the way that we live. Well, let's continue on. A a very famous verse in Romans chapter 12. Turn there really quick. Romans 12, the apostle Paul obviously carries this on and he says this verse, uh, Romans 12, one and two, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Saying this is how we worship God, living as sacrifices before him. Verse two, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and Perfect. Isn't, it, isn't it interesting how Paul calls us to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, meaning the way that we live is a sacrifice of worship to the Lord. And he says, holy, meaning set apart, sanctified, different than everyone and everything else, holy and acceptable to him. Holy and acceptable to the Lord. This is our spiritual worship. And then that concept leads into the call that we are not to be conformed to this world. Meaning we don't look at the world and let ourselves be molded into the mold of the world. Rather, we recognize, like Jesus said, as his followers would be in the world, but not of the world. One of the most challenging responsibilities for believers today is to be in this world, surrounded by ungodliness, but choose to not participate or become conformed to it. He says, rather be transformed meaning changed by the renewing of your mind this harkens back to what jesus said when he said sanctify them in your truth In the truth your word is truth paul is amening so to speak what jesus taught that we are not to look like the world we are to be holy we are to be different we ought not blend in in fact that's what i want you to see today is that holiness doesn't blend in Holiness does not blend in. And it's not this idea, this whole uh, complex of holier than thou. This is not a call for us to look down the nose at unbelievers and go, I'm better than you. That's self-righteousness. That's the Pharisees. And God hates that. Rather, we are to look at the unbeliever recognizing from Ephesians 2 that we were just like them dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked following the course of this world, the prince of the power that's now at work and the sons of disobedience among whom we all once walked following the course of this world following the passions of our flesh, the desires of the body and mind. So we don't look at unbelievers in this I'm holier than you concept. We look at them wanting them to be saved, wanting them to come to the knowledge of the truth, but also recognizing in that I'm not going to let myself be influenced to where I become like them. Why? Because God is holy and he calls us to be holy. He wants his people to be different and holiness doesn't blend in. I moved here on November 6th of 2012. Almost a decade I've been a Wisconsinite and I love it even in winter. Now, come March, I'm like, okay, can we can we see green again? But even still, I, I, I love Wisconsin. I love being here. When I moved here, November 6th of 2012, about six months later on April 19th, I met this girl, Katie, who is now my wife. And when I moved here, I moved here as a single man, um, and, and I didn't need a lot of money. I came on a very humble part-time salary because I didn't need more. I had a small one-bedroom apartment, and I was doing the Lord's work here in the church, and I didn't need much, and so that was fine. And then uh, we started to get really serious, and I'm going, okay, this is lining up for marriage. Okay, probably should get a little bit more money, and I also wanted to buy her a ring and all that kind of stuff, so I took a third shift job at a local factory in manufacturing, which was an environment full of happiness and rainbows. It was full of edifying and encouraging and clean language. (laughs) I see many of you are in manufacturing. (laughs) And I remember starting there and I go in going, okay, I'm going to try and let it not necessarily get out out the gate that I'm a pastor or even a believer because I know that's going to get out at some point. And so I want to go in and I want to treat these people not differently. When they're using that language where it's like, I'm not exaggerating in saying this, that there were sentences or there were certain people that could not let a sentence get out without an F-bomb. I'm not exaggerating. You guys know. Just language, unreal language and, and, and different work ethic habits and things like that that I go in and I'm going, okay, I'm going to try that when I, these people are talking all this way, I want them to have a time of seeing me not treat them different, not look down the nose at them, love them, work hard alongside them, uh, try and work harder than anyone else. And, and I did that. And I was there for about a month before it finally got out that I was a Christian and then got out that I was a pastor. And here's how it happened. One day, one of my coworkers who I was scheduled side by side in the shift with said, hey, I've noticed, how come you never cuss?" Holiness doesn't blend in. And it's not because I'm trying to be better than it. And I'm not saying, I'm not up here saying I'm perfect either. I'm a sinner who needs the grace of God in my life daily. But as we strive to live holy before the Lord, it doesn't blend in. It sticks out like a sore thumb. And in that environment, when there's someone who doesn't talk the same way as everyone else, you stick out. And not only that, but I remember nights where we were scheduled because of large orders that they made mandatory weekend shifts And there was weekends that I had to work, and the interesting thing that I found interesting was that the shift leaders were not scheduled, and so all of us were there working on the line without shift leaders, and you would see people be lazy, and you would see people take longer breaks, and I remember sitting in the break room, we ordered pizza, and they're like, hey, you know what? Uh, We could take a longer break today because they're not here. Our our leaders aren't here. They're never going to know. And I'm like, no, no, I'm not going to do that. That's not right. Colossians 3 tells us that in all that we do, we do heartily as unto the Lord not as unto man, knowing that we, from the Lord we receive the reward of the inheritance, for we serve the Lord Christ. And that's another thing that other than language makes people go, he's a little different. And God gave me lots of opportunities to have conversations with people about a month. And as when she said this person said, hey, how, how come you never cuss? And I'm like, well, I, I just don't think that language is becoming of someone who's trying to follow Jesus. Oh. I'm sorry. <laughs> and at that point, it was still like, it was this, like, oh, one of those people. But then it got out that I'm a pastor, and it changed from, oh, one of those people, to, like, oh, no. <laughs> and all the, um, I am so sorry. I, I didn't know. And I'm like, listen, I, you, you be you. You don't need to change who you are for me. You, you need to consider the Lord, not me. And I had lots of great conversations, got to pray with people and then share the gospel with a few. And I remember one day after this that I was in the break room reading my Bible and uh, just trying to shine my light. And one of uh, a dear lady came in who was the most foul mouthed woman I've ever met in my life who's also someone that the Lord gave me great love and compassion for. And she came in and she saw me read my Bible. And she said, hey, Pastor Steve, what you reading over there? And I'm not trying to Sheboygan. That's what it was though. (laughs) She said, hey, Pastor Steve, what you reading over there? And I said, I'm just reading my Bible. And she said, I got to read the blankety blank Bible more. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) you do. You do. But I didn't go, oh, how dare you. I just tried to live holy and live different in a way. And what you would find is after time, when people are going through stuff, who do they come to? Those who are different. God wants his people to be different. It's not some holier than now complex. It's not some self-righteous thing. God hates that. He hates it. And that was me for the first 26 years of my life, feeling like I'm better than everyone when I had my own wicked heart, but I was good at acting really holy. We ought to look different. God wants his people to look different. So God tells his people, you're going to be my chosen people, my precious possession out of all the earth. You're going to be a kingdom of priests. You're going to be a holy nation, giving them the context, helping them understand All these things I'm about to tell you, these commands I'm going to give you, are because you are going to look different. You're going to be priests showing the rest of the world how my people are different. And we're not like the rest of the world. And then he opens up these commands with the famous Ten Commandments, the standard, if you will, so to speak, the heartbeat of all the rest of the commandments that would unfold. I don't have time to read all the passages today there, but... Beginning In summary, he says, you're going to have no other gods before me. You're not going to make or keep any idols. You're not going to take the Lord's name. You're not going to take my name in vain. You're going to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. You're going to honor your father and mother. You're not going to murder. You're not going to commit adultery. You're not going to steal. You're not going to lie and bear false witness. And you're not going to covet other people's stuff. And he tells them this, and Moses comes and reads this to all of the congregation. In fact, let's go now back to Exodus. Let's look at Exodus chapter 24. Because he gives those ten commandments in chapter 20, and then the next few chapters he then begins giving a lot more nuanced and detailed commands about the way that the people are to treat others. And then we would see in Leviticus and on a lot more commands of how they're supposed to do different things But these Ten Commandments are given kind of as the standard, and then God wraps up some other uh, more nuanced and detailed commandments after that. God packages it metaphorically, gives it to Moses, and let's pick up Exodus chapter 24. We're going to read verses 1 through 8. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord. But the other shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. (laughs) And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he set young men... Or, and he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it on the basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, deja vu, and they said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Two times in this passage and then earlier in what we read, we saw the people of Israel receive the commands of God and go, we will do it, every word. Ever been there? I have. Let me me say this another way. Ever significantly overestimated your ability to do something? Let me say it one more way. Have you ever been self-deceived? That's so what's going on here. They're hearing God's command, and they're like, yeah, we can do that. We'll do it, Lord. Every word. I remember, again, growing up in church, going to Every single kid's service, every Sunday night service, every Wednesday night service, every prayer meeting, every pastor's conference, every youth conference, every youth meeting, every kid's camp, every youth camp. Guys, I've been to church a lot. And in all of those times, having the points where I would feel convicted about my sin and then rededicate my life over a hundred times saying, I mean it this time, God. I mean it. I know I've said this before, but this time, God, I mean it even though I know I meant it last time. And we would go to those youth camps and these youth rallies, which are good and wonderful things, but we would come back and we would line up our youth group on the stage and we'd pass the microphone saying what God did in our hearts at these camps and at these rallies and we'd one by one go, I've been changed, I'll never be the same. The fire's not going out this time. A week, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks later, not much of a flame left. Every time, My relationship with God for the first 26 years of my life was based on this, I'm going to be better and I'm going to rededicate myself to the Lord so that I can do better and earn. And I knew the gospel in my head. I knew that you can't earn it, say by grace through faith, but by our default nature, we want to earn. And it's until we let the law of God crush us because here's what happens. We're just like the Israelites. We hear the commands of God and we're going, yeah, I can do that. That's not. I'm not going to murder anybody. I'm not going to commit adultery. Honoring my parents. That's easy. Don't covet. <laughs> that's a little more challenging. But God help. I, I think I can do that. Let's see what Jesus does as we go to Matthew chapter five, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus to every one of us who are going. I can do this. I've got this. Yeah, God, I'll follow every word. In Matthew chapter five. Starting in verse 17, Jesus says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And this is where Jesus says, okay, listen, the law is the standard. I've not come to abolish it. I've come to fulfill it. It's still functional in its purpose. And he says, if you keep it, then you shall have the kingdom. And, and we're like, yeah, okay, I'll keep it. Just like the Israelites, we're like, we'll do every word. But then Jesus goes, let me help you see what's going on here. Continuing on in verse 21, he says, You have heard that it was said of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. He's quoting the commands, the law of God. You've heard it said, thou shall not murder. But I say to you, to everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, we've said a lot worse than that, right? Will be liable to the hell of fire. If you're offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So to the people who are going, hey, I've never murdered anybody, so I'm doing pretty good on that commandment, Jesus is saying, yeah, but have you been angry? Well, I mean, who hasn't been angry? Exactly. Exactly. Let's see how he continues. Verse 27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, I'm going, yeah, I got that. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust, with lustful intent, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Oh, snap. We're all in trouble. That's what Jesus is trying to say to people who are trying to live by the law, thinking, I've got this, I will do it. Jesus is saying, good luck. Because you're looking at these clearly defined statements, and you're going, yeah, I've got that one pretty good, and he's saying, actually, it's not even about that. It's about what's going on in your heart. The stuff that's happening in your heart, even though you're not doing X, Y, Z, your heart's doing it, and therefore, you're guilty before the Lord. I remember growing up, I I saved uh, myself for marriage. I lost my virginity on our wedding night, and I used to wear that around. I remember in high school and in college, I looked for opportunities to, to wear that patch on my shoulder and go, yeah, I'm president of the virgin club, That's a metaphor. I didn't really say that or wear a patch. That would have been weird, but maybe I should have. No, but I used to wear that around like this badge of honor. When according to what Jesus says here, I was just as adulterous, if not more adulterous than all of my friends who were doing the deed. I was a slave to that sin. And that's a rampant spiritual cancer in the church today as well. that's something our guys have been talking about in the last men's breakfast that we've been going through. Jesus is trying to help us see, you ain't got a chance, bud. You ain't got a chance if you think you can do this stuff. That if it's your willpower, your white knuckling to go, I'm going to do this. You know what changed for me? When I was 26 years old and I finally got tired of being fake And I finally got tired of trying to convince everyone and myself that I really was this poster child of Christianity, and I finally was willing to acknowledge I am a wicked, nasty, perverted, vile, evil sinner. There is something wrong with my heart because I've rededicated a hundred times and it's never stuck, it's never worked. There must be something wrong with my heart. I finally was honest with myself about the position of my heart even though I knew how to do all the right church stuff and knew how to act right and behave right and speak right. My heart was wicked. And that's what Jesus is trying to confront everyone with. In fact, let's turn to the next page. Matthew chapter five, the final verse in this chapter. He summarizes it in case anybody hasn't got what he's saying yet. He summarizes it with verse 48. You, therefore, must be what? Perfect. Okay, who can raise their hand on that one? No. He's saying in case you're still thinking you got it, you, therefore, must be perfect. As your heavenly Father is perfect. Trying to make everyone go, oh, no. Because there is not a human who has even a shred of truth in their heart that thinks they're perfect. Our conscience confronts us. We all know we're falling short of the glory of God. We all know that we're sinners. We all know that we're not perfect. Even after you become a child of God, you still wrestle against the flesh and against sin and against temptation. And sometimes we fail. By the grace of God, we keep maturing and growing and sin less and less. And God uh, matures us and sanctifies us and, and continues the work of his Holy Spirit in us. But we all know we're not perfect, and Jesus is trying to help everyone see, listen, your only shot is if someone else stands in your place when you stand before the Lord. The, heart, the, the problem is not knowing the commands of God. The problem is your heart's desire to obey the commands of God. This is not a head issue, it's a heart issue. This is why the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah what is it 31? I believe yeah, in Jeremiah 31. He says that God is going to, in the new covenant, no longer lead you by the hand, but write his laws on your heart. This is why Ezekiel, chapter 36, another prophet in a different era of the the Israel ancient kingdom, that's why he said that God is going to remove your stony, stubborn heart and replace it with a heart of flesh, a heart tender and responsive to his decrees, where we want to please God, where we want to serve him, where we want to obey, where we want to live holy, because if your life of holiness unto God is God, I rededicate, I commit my passion and faithful service unto you. I'm gonna do better this time. I know I failed, but God, this time I mean it. then you are taking the law on yourself a burden you cannot bear and it will crush you it does not mean the law is evil scripture teaches that it is good but it was meant to be given to us as a hurdle we could not clear as a weight we could not lift so that we would go i can't be perfect i can't do this there must be something wrong with me and that's what jesus was trying to get them to see in the sermon on the mount It's not just be good so God will like you. It's not just obey these rules so that you can be accepted by God. It's, hey, you can't because you're dead in sin. And your only hope is if you get a new heart. And the only way that that happens is if you look in the mirror and go, I'm a dead, filthy, wicked sinner. God, I need you to save me and change me. I need you to fill me with your Holy Spirit. Give me the desire. Give me the power to do what I know I should do, but I can't do. I want to give you homework, please, on your own time, read Romans chapter 7 and chapter 8 this week. Romans chapter 7, you're going to see the Apostle Paul frustrated, venting about his own struggle with sin, saying the things I want to do, I don't do, and the things I don't want to do, I do. And I recognize it's sin that's within me that I'm wrestling with. And he says, who can save me from this wretched man that I am? Thanks be to God, Jesus Christ can. And he goes on to say, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not according to the law, but according to the spirit, or not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. As long as your life as a Christian is your your commitment of white-knuckle do-gooding, You will be bearing a burden. Your life will be a burden of service before the Lord. You will not have joy in serving and following Jesus. You won't have the power to do it, and you will be condemning yourself to a life of perpetual guilt and condemnation and frustration because you can't obey. But if you repent and if you lay before the Lord, honesty and humility, recognizing I'm not as good as I think I am. I need your help, God. I need you to save me. I need you to do, Romans 8 tells us that God did what the law could not do and that it was weakened by the flesh, that he gave us his Holy Spirit. And when we acknowledge our need for Jesus Christ and we repent of our sins sincerely in our heart, when we're just willing to say, I don't got this, I'm not good, but you are and you can give me your spirit. God, I ask you to fill me with your spirit and change my heart. He does. And if that's you today... If you're here today, and you are exhausted by trying to be good enough for God, which we do strive for holiness, but we strive from who we are rather than who we're trying to become. God changes our heart, and it's, it's, it's no longer that we are trying to fulfill our end of the contract and hold up our end of the deal. We recognize Jesus fulfilled the law. God invites us in, and now we obey because we're his children. And I tell you, my dad, I I feared my dad growing up, and I loved my dad. I was fearful of his power over me, but I also knew he loved me and welcomed me and wanted to spend time with me. And our good and loving Father wants to welcome us and bring us close. Please, on your own time this week, read Romans chapter 7 and Romans chapter 8, you'll see the contrast of the struggle with sin And that when we have the Holy Spirit inside of us, how he empowers us, when we walk in the Spirit, people who are saved by the grace of God get filled with the Spirit and then have the power to live in a way that you couldn't before. God, I ask today that you would fill us with your spirit, that you would change us. God, if there's anyone here or online that doesn't know you, God, I ask that you would open their eyes. If there's anyone here who's had confidence in their own flesh or their own willpower or their own goodness, I pray that you would tear those lies down, that you would help them see their need for you, that you would help them by your grace to repent of their sin and receive forgiveness and grace and mercy and be filled by your Holy Spirit and transformed by it. In Jesus' name, amen.